1975, a professional basketball team faced intense crisis. They were undersupported and shorthanded and in desperate need for skilled players who could turn the team around before they floundered out of the league. And then in this stunning act of charity, a coach from a different team sent two of his best players to join the struggling team and to lead them toward a healthy, competitive season. I completely made that story up. <laughs> it did, that never happened. Um, because that sort of thing doesn't really happen in the sports world. Uh, in fact, that sort of thing doesn't really happen in any sphere of life. Uh, have you ever heard a business owner say something like this? Well, this employee of mine is really gifted and loyal and effective, and so I think I'm going to send him to that other business down the road in order to bless them and strengthen them and promote them. Does that... We don't operate that way. We don't operate that way. Human beings don't naturally think or act in this way. Um, if you're a chronological Bible reader, many of us are, are sailing through First and Second Samuel and even the Chronicles right now. Remember back to 1 Samuel 14 when King Saul is set on establishing his own kingdom. What does he do? He stockpiles the strongest and most valiant men around himself. He, he hoards for himself all the best of the best and the cream of the crop. And King Saul in 1 Samuel 14 really exemplifies kind of what we are all naturally prone to doing. Keeping the A-team for ourselves. That's our default way of thinking and acting. This morning, however... Uh, we continue in our series through the book of Philippians, uh, through the letter written from the Apostle Paul to the young Christians in the city of Philippi, and our verses, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, in those verses we're going to see that although a criminal trial awaits Paul as he writes this letter, and although possible execution looms over him while he is under house arrest in Rome, and although Paul would have every understandable reason to stockpile around himself all the godly men he can uh, gather to comfort himself and to tend to his own needs, in our passage we're about to see Paul, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Unlike King Saul, Paul, whose Jewish name is Paul or Saul, there's, there's some irony here, that this better Saul, if you will, in fact, in his moment of, of probably dire need, he prepares to send out two of his dear, godly, all-star friends to go and minister to others in Philippi. We're going to dive into this. We're going to mine this to see what it is God might have us to think like and, and, and act like. And so I'd invite you to follow along now as I read verses 19 through 30 of Philippians chapter 2. And I want to emphasize the, the posture of Paul as he writes, from the lonely confinement of house arrest with possible execution looming over his head, Paul writes these words starting in verse 19. I hope 
in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may so I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Father, we thank you for your word, inspired through the pens of men, through, in this case, the pen of Paul. And we ask that by your most holy spirit, you would help us to dig. You would lead us into the truths, the applicable truths that this passage has. Show us what we have in Christ through this passage and show us what we must become because of Christ through this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At first glance or, or during our, our, our first read through that passage, it, it might be rather odd to you that Paul presents this sort of travel log right here in the middle of his letter. In other letters of Paul, he, he, he waits till the end to share his travel plans, but not here. And there's a reason for that. Now follow me for a second. Back in chapter one, we read, we read of him urging the Philippians to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ In the beginning of chapter 2, he urged them toward humble unity, toward the same mind and the same love, and to be concerned with the interests of others more than their own. Then in verses 5 through 11, which our brother Ed Rocha wonderfully unpacked, Paul urged them, uh, he actually, he poetically illustrated what he was urging them toward, and he gave them a reason in verses 5 through 11 why such humble unity is possible through Christ, who is God, yet who became a servant and died for our sake. And now as we come to verses 19 through 20, it seems like all of a sudden, Paul shares his travel plans for Timothy and Epaphroditus. Here's why. These two men are actual 
living, breathing examples of all that Paul has been instructing the Philippians to do thus far in the letter. Timothy and Epaphroditus are living lives worthy of the gospel. These men are concerned for the interests of others more than their own interests. In other words, they are the cream of the godly crop. These men are the best of the best. And we might completely understand and relate with Paul, given his circumstance in house arrest in Rome. We would understand, wouldn't we, if Paul wanted to keep these men close to himself at a moment such as this for comfort, for bolstering, for joy, for all these things. Instead, what we've just read, Paul is preparing to send them out to bless and to strengthen and to edify other men and women in Christ in the Philippian church. Now, I think that there's a very timely and practical invitation for each of us in this passage. And we're going to consider the passage and and consider what this passage is inviting us to do. Uh, We're going to consider this passage really in two parts, two points. My first point's going to be considerably longer than the second. Number one, we're going to look at whom Paul is sending out. That's what the passage considers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. We're going to look at whom Paul is planning to send out. And then point number two, we're going to look at why Paul is sending them out. You might even word it, how? By what power? How is Paul able to to be rid of these men right now in this season? So who and why, essentially? And so we'll start with point number one. Let's look at whom Paul is planning to send to the Philippian church. In verses 19 through 24, you can see how our our passage really kindly, it neatly breaks down into two paragraphs. In, In verses 19 through 24, the first paragraph, Paul writes this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So that I may be cheered by a report from him that you indeed are continuing to live your lives in a worthy manner of the gospel, just as I've urged you. In verses 20 and 22, or through 22, Paul emphasizes he doesn't have anyone quite like Timothy. Timothy is genuine. He's proven. He is like a son to Paul. And he essentially gets at this. Look, everyone is concerned more with their own interests, not the interests of Christ, but Paul's point here, not not Timothy. You know Timothy's proven worth, oh dear Philippian Christians. You know his devotion to Christ and the church. You know that he isn't short-sighted by his own comforts and pleasures and plans. You know that he is in fact driven by, through, and for the good news of Christ. That's what drives him. That's what animates him. What an amazing description of this young man, Timothy. What an example Timothy will be, as Paul sends him to the Philippians, of all that Paul has been writing to the Philippians that they should do. What an example. I'm sending you Timothy. Just look at him. Emulate his life. And here's an applicable question for you in Christ this morning. 
would, would people describe you the way that, that Paul has just described Timothy? Uh, Timothy isn't a superhero. He's, he's a dude who is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's striving after Christ. Would those in your house describe you the way Paul has just described Timothy? Genuine, proven, not flaky, consistent. Concerned more for the well-being of others than yourself and, and so forth. Devoted to Christ and the church. Would others in your family describe you this way, that you're in fact so devoted to Christ in the church, you're not short-sighted by your own comforts and pleasures and plans. Would someone in your community group describe you, describe you this way? And maybe we could even turn the question, who would you describe in this way in your life? Would you describe your son or daughter, someone in your family, someone in your community group And as you're thinking of this person, hopefully, Lord willing, the Lord's bringing someone to mind, follow it up with this question. What is your tendency regarding such people to the all-stars of the Christian faith that you have in your life? Are you prone to stockpiling? They're in my community group. They're mine. Like King Saul Or like the Apostle Paul, are you prone toward, by God's grace, sending them out? Wow, brother, you are awesome. You are knowledgeable in the word. You are consistent. Come into community. You participate. You have good, wise things to say. I tell you what, I'm going to, we're sending you out. Other people need to be blessed by you. And of course, we're still going to be friends. I hope to hang out with you all the time. You, you following? You tracking with my logic here? Paul continues in verse 25. I have also thought it necessary. I added the word also there, of course. But I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, remember with me, Epaphroditus is a member of the Philippian church who had been sent by the Philippian church for 4,600 miles from Philippi to Rome in order to bring Paul the financial care package that they had collected for him. That's why in, in 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as their messenger and minister to his need. That's what he came to do. But notice the other words that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Kind of like a, like a battle-proven comrade. You know, Paul here speaks of Epaphroditus the way that I've heard military veterans speak of other veterans with whom they've faced death. You know, when we were in the trenches together, brother, In verses 26 and 27, Paul Paul, um, sorrowfully explains really the reality behind why he, I think he feels like a fellow soldier 
who have, they face death together because either on Epaphroditus' way to Rome or while he was in Rome, he nearly died of sickness. But he didn't, thanks be to God. Sweet mercy. And in verse 28, Paul explains that this is why he is all the more eager to send Epaphroditus home twofold. Number one, so that the Philippians can rejoice at seeing him well and seeing him face to face again. And the anxiety in his heart, this is really, he wants uh, an emphatic burden to be relieved uh, by by sending, you know what, Philippians, if I could only just know that you get to see your brother Epaphroditus again face to face, that's going to relieve this burden from me. And then finally in verses 29 and 30, the end of our passage, Paul urges the Philippians to joyfully receive Epaphroditus. Now, remember, they had sent him all the way to Rome to serve Paul long term. But Paul is sending him back and he's saying that they should welcome him back and even honor him because he nearly died doing the work of Christ, that is, completing the delivery of the Philippian care package that they had assembled for Paul. Now, can we just pause for a moment here in verse 30? I want us to consider a profound nugget of encouragement. Paul describes Epaphroditus' delivery of a care package as doing the work of Christ. You see that? Would you describe the mere delivery of a package? I mean, imagine, you know, Epaphroditus wearing some UPS hat, right? He he delivers this care package, you know, he traveled a long way to go to Paul. He delivers the package, and would you describe that as doing the work of Christ? I mean, at first glance, I wouldn't, but then let me, let me burrow further. There's, of course, an idea that I'm driving at. Would you describe serving the kids of Oaks Church back in the nursery, in the classrooms, would you describe that as doing the work of Christ? Would you describe cleaning the facilities before and after our gatherings or folding bulletins? Or committing to a community group as doing the work of Christ? We ought to. We ought to. Listen to these words from the late pastor named Fred Craddock who comments on this passage, who comments on this idea of the work of Christ being very seemingly ordinary. Listen to this. We often think that doing the work of Christ is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. Like paying the price of martyrdom and going out in a blaze of glory. But the reality for most of us is that the Lord sends us back to the bank. He has us cash in that $1,000 bill for quarters. And as we go through life, guess what we are to do? We're to put out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. We're to listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of telling him to get lost. We're to show up at the committee meeting that we have agreed to being. We're to give a cup of water to the shaky old man in a nursing home. See, usually doing the work of Christ isn't so glorious 
It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It, in fact, might be easier to go out in a flash of glory while it might be harder to live the Christian life little by little over a long period of time. In traveling to Rome to deliver a care package to an imprisoned friend, Epaphroditus did the work of the Lord. He did the work of Christ. For all of you who came to the schoolhouse a few weeks ago to tidy up the flower beds and to clean up the inside of this building to serve the saints, to serve the community of Worcester that drives by and looks at the, the building, we, we can't dismiss that there was some work of Christ in that. In preparing a dish to share with your community group each Wednesday, or opening up your home for fellowship and discussion and encouragement, you are doing the work of Christ. In the slow but steady buildup of the body of Christ, teaching and encouraging and admonishing one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, this is the work of Christ. And this is who Paul is sending out. Point number one, he's sending out two genuine, committed, proven workers of Christ, two of his best, two dudes that every one of us would likely want to hold on to. He's sending them out. Point number two, for the remaining minutes of our time together, why on earth is Paul sending these men out? Why on earth is Paul willing to part with Timothy, who is, as, who, who is as dear to him as a son? Why on earth is Paul willing to part with Epaphroditus, a brother, worker, soldier in the Lord? It's because of this. Paul has discovered the secret that God invites each of us into this morning. Paul has discovered the deep, joy. He's discovered the unending hope. He's discovered the surpassing confidence and the profound peace that belongs to those who leverage their lives for the advancement of the greater kingdom of God, not the temporal kingdom of our own earthly plans and comforts and desires. About this passage, Pastor J.D. Greer comments, this is how God grows his kingdom. As we take our hands off of the little portion that he has given to us, as we die to our control of it, and as we then plant it out in the world, this is often how God grows his kingdom. And this is the place that every Christian, every one of us is invited into today. And here's where I'm going with this. There are a, probably a hundred ways we might directly apply the thematic lesson that we see in Paul's generously giving of these men away. But here's where I'm going with this this morning. Here at Oaks Church, we have six community groups. 
Each community group is comprised of 10 to 20 men and women of various ages and backgrounds who meet together weekly to share a meal, to pray, to discuss scripture, and to build deepening, God-honoring relationships with one another. And over time, those kind of relationships are exactly, exactly what is forged. We develop a deep friendship with a people that we may never have interacted with if it weren't for the fact that we were put into a Jesus-centered community group together. Do you know how my community group, the Lawson community group, came into being? When my wife and I moved to Worcester, the Buckwalter group, the Allen group, the Fry group, all the groups, they sent out a handful of their best people to become my group that I would get to facilitate and love. Do you know how the Tarrakis CG was formed. Well, we in the Lawson group sent out a handful of our beloved best people to become the Tarakis group. Do you know how the Vermilia CG was formed? Well, the Allen CG, which is now the Martin CG, sent out a handful of their best people to become that group. I mean, do we know how churches are planted? Sending out. Do we know how missions are fueled? Looking at this brother and sister in Christ, wow. God's, God's hand is all over you. you. You are so filled by the Spirit. You understand the word. You have a heart for people. Go, go. Churches are planted, missions are fueled, community groups are multiplied when godly men and women send out other godly men and women for the sake of advancing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Martin Luther, the Reformed theologian, once quipped, that which I have tried to grasp and to keep for myself in my life, I have ended up losing. But that which I have placed in God's hands, oddly, I still have. And so here is an immediate invitation this morning. If you know of a member of Oaks Church who would be a fitting community group leader, fitting group facilitator, if you are that person, I can't tell you how much need we are experiencing right now. All six of our groups are bursting at the seams. And I would love, and Pastor Seth would love, if you could chat with us, if you're a member willing to, to step into that, I would love to demystify that role a little bit. 10 to 15 people once a week to facilitate a conversation that all of it's prepared for you ahead of time, and to simply be prayerful for a group of men and women to love them, to serve them, their kids, to eat together, to be mindful of one another. That's the invitation. It isn't this knockdown, drag out, super intense thing that you ought to be just wrenched about. Oh my goodness, come and speak to me because we have a real need right now. Like, by God's grace, we have... Uh, we have oddly uh, grown. New faces have come throughout the COVID season and all that stuff. And, and I just can't 
be quiet about pushing people toward groups from up here. And the problem is, is that they're actually going to the groups. And so now we, we're like getting to the point where we don't really have room for anyone. Please, if you're a member, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Pastor Seth. We need your help. We need to send you out. And we need to understand that what God in this passage is essentially asking and inviting us to do by sending out our best, we must understand that he himself modeled this firstly by sending us Christ. God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. This is what we see and savor and celebrate and submit to when we together take from the Lord's table. John 3, 16, for God so loved us, the world, that he sent out his only son. His perfect, spotless, sinless, only begotten son with whom he shared, along with the Holy Spirit, eternal essence and perfect love and seamless harmony and utmost joy. Talk about sending out your best Glory, Father, thank you for sending us Christ. And what was God's purpose in sending out Christ? What are we declaring to and with one another when we come together as saints to the Lord's table to take together of communion? This is what we declare and celebrate. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake the Father sent Christ who knew no sin to be our sinful substitute on the cross of Calvary, to be punished in our place so that we, by repentant faith in Christ, might become the very righteousness of God forever. Oh, that we would see as we prepare to approach the Lord's Supper, oh, we would see that we are free and empowered to concern ourselves with the interests of others. Like Paul, like Timothy, they put the well-being of others before themselves. We can, we are freed to do so, empowered to do so, because God in Christ has already done so for us. And so here is the invitation as I prepare to pray. If you are a fruit-bearing believer in Christ, if you understand what it means to take the bread and the cup in a reverent, self-examining manner, then after I pray, I would invite you to come to the Lord's table to take the bread and the cup with me in a spirit of joyful repentance. Maybe as we come forward, we admit to God, we confess to God that we are so much more prone to working toward our own kingdoms, our own comforts, our own well-being, and we often neglect or even flat out rebel against sending out our best for the blessing of others and the expansion of God's kingdom. It's joyful repentance because when we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us in Christ. 
Would you pray with me? And as I pray, I would invite our communion servers up today. Again, if you are a fruit-bearing believer in Christ and if you understand what it means to take these elements in a reverent and self-examining manner, then after I'm done praying, I would invite you as you feel ready to come and to take and to celebrate in reverence and humility and joy the bread and the cup. Let's pray together. Father, what a word we have in your scriptures. I confess that I don't, I don't love your words as dearly, as nearly dearly as I ought. But Lord, I pray that in seeing and in contemplating how you, sending out your best, your only begotten son, perfect, spotless, stainless, I pray that we would be humbled by this fact that you sent him to save us from our sin, that we would repent before you because so often we take of that gospel good news and then we hoard our time and talent and treasure and the people that you have supplied in our lives. Lord, I'm so often my kingdom-minded and not your kingdom-minded being established on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive, sanctify, encourage and strengthen as we come together in union, communion, to share of the bread and the cup that points us to the death of Jesus Christ and, of course, his triumphant resurrection. Be glorified as we celebrate and declare and remember and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.